Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. For the 50th episode of this podcast, I'm delighted to feature Professor David Larker and Brian Tan from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. They have been jointly researching and writing about corporate governance for the last 15 years. Through their research efforts, they strive to engage academics and professionals to bridge the gap between theory and practice and promote corporate governance as an independent area of teaching and scholarship in business schools worldwide. They have also authored books compiling their research, including Corporate Governance Matters, first published in 2011 and currently in its third edition, and A Real Look at Real-World Corporate Governance, published in 2013. David Larker is the James Irvin Miller Professor of Accounting at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he's a senior faculty at the Arthur and Tony Remby Rock Center for Corporate Governance. His research focuses on executive compensation, corporate governance, and managerial accounting. Brian Tan is a member of the Corporate Governance Research Program at the Stanford GSB. He has written broadly on the subject of corporate governance, including boards, succession planning, executive compensation, financial accounting, and shareholder relations. In this podcast, we talk about their latest article entitled Seven Myths of ESG, where they set about debunking some of the most common and persistent myths about what ESG is, how it should be implemented, and its impact on corporate outcomes, many of which they contend are not supported by empirical evidence. Their objective is to provide a better understanding of ESG so that companies, institutions, and regulators can take a more thoughtful approach to incorporating stakeholder objectives into the corporate planning process. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. David and Brian, you don't know the pleasure I have to have you in this podcast as my guest. I've been trying for a long time. It has taken 50 episodes, but I'm so happy to do the 50th episode with you. I'm very excited. As you know, I read and follow all of your papers, all of your research. It's great stuff out there. So thank you very much for doing this. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Evan. All right, so let's get started. So I I like to start these podcasts by getting the origin story of my guest. So maybe maybe we can start with you, David. Tell tell us more about you. You know where you grew up, and of course you have a very long trajectory in governance. So we could take thirty minutes, but let's try to do the the, the short version. Yeah. So originally, I'm from a small coal mining town in uh, southern Illinois, and. you know, it's ESG is a big deal there because, you know, people are, you know, obviously coal miners, coal is, is carbon and there's a big pushback there. So I'm pretty sensitive to these uh, ESG issues. I went to school at what's now called the Missouri School of Science and Technology, uh, worked as an engineer for a little bit, uh, have a PhD in business from Kansas. And I've been at uh, Kellogg. Uh, I was at Wharton for 20 years and then the last 15 or so years I've been here at Stanford. Um, so I mostly work on executive compensation um, and uh, corporate governance. And, you know, it's, it's been certainly a pleasure working with Brian uh, over, over these many years. And, you know, our view, quite frankly, is let's, this is a really important stuff. Let's see if we can get the story straight. And we try to do it with kind of evidence-based and not being normative or prescriptive, but 
get in there and say, you know, what, what do we know and help form the debate and, you know, hopefully, you know, push the ball forward in a sensible way for governance. Yeah, no, and, and obviously, uh, I think there's a long track record of academic research that you've done there. We, we're going to dive into that in a second. But Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? Uh, yeah, I'm um, from Menlo Park, California. So I'm uh, of the suburbs of Stanford University. And uh, I went to college on the East Coast, but I went to graduate school uh, at Stanford at the business school. And after Stanford, I worked um in the finance department for the main university at Stanford, and then also worked at UBS in their private wealth management uh, division for a while before I came back to the business school. And I was fortunate enough 15 years ago to be matched up with Dave. And uh, he had um, come over recently from Wharton and was teaching and developing the corporate governance class for the business school. And he uh, got matched up with me and I was fortunate to work with him on that. And one of the things that was great about it is that Dave took an approach that was very different from really what existed at the time. And I would still argue is not very well developed across business schools. And that is to have what I would call a comprehensive view of corporate governance. And historically, and even still, when you look across many um, classes, the way they teach it is focused on some aspects. Um, at the at business schools, you know, they may focus on compensation and incentives, or they may focus on board of directors. But Dave wanted to take this comprehensive view where we would say, let's look at boards of directors, let's look at, you know, strategy and how you set the strategy, let's look at how you find the CEO, let's look at compensation, we'll look at audit risk management, the market for corporate control, shareholders, activism, advocacy, and all those things proxy advisory. And so it really was a lot of work. And, um, you know, that kind of launched what we what we did and as a first step was really coming out with um, a review of what existed what research existed what data existed and what knowledge existed in each of those areas and from that point we were able to identify a lot of gaps and 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 Dave has um, Dave and I have been working on trying to fill some of those in particularly the more interesting gaps so I should add that not only is this a change in business schools, but also in law schools where uh, typically the study of governance has had like two parallel tracks and you have business schools and law schools. And the Rock Center is this great place where they did from the beginning a joint research center. And I think the work uh, that you do, David, with uh, the law faculty at Stanford is great. And you need kind of this symbiotic relationship because there are so many legal issues, there's so much regulation going on, uh, there's so much enforcement actions and other changes that this is the only way, at least, as you know, I spent a lot of time with you guys at the Rock Center, and it does inform you in a much deeper way on what governance should be. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a great point. Um, business schools tend to be a little isolated in universities, and certainly in the in the corporate governance space, um, you know, it's you know, so I port corporate finance, part accounting, corporate law, regulation. I mean, um, you know, reaching out to these other areas and learning, you know, the the world from that perspective, integrating is is really really key, and so. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we've been involved with the Rock Center since since its inception, and it's it's been a great uh, opportunity for us to collaborate. And I think most business school types 
really don't get the real nitty gritty of the law correct. They get it sort of correct, but then lawyers read it and it's like, well, you know, yeah, this is not exactly what happened. So, I mean, we've learned a lot from the corporate law group there at Stanford. It's been been a pleasure working with them. Yes, they've kept us humble. We've been told we're wrong many times, and now we've learned. <laughs> well, it, it, it's really interesting because even that's in the suburb of Stanford, but when you go out there, and, and t- typically when you talk to experts in governance, it's very siloed, and, and people tend to have a, a view on the strategy, for example, organizational governance. But then when you talk to the lawyers and law schools, it's completely different. So I think this should be more the case that – Law schools and business schools work together and have this kind of holistic view of corporate governance. And I do remember your book, uh, Corporate Governance Matters, that was published first in 2011. I know you've had a second edition in 2015, which is a great book because it does provide the empirical evidence behind a lot of these things. And I should say, every time I teach corporate governance, I start with this caveat. Look, there is empirical evidence in corporate governance, and there's a lot of opinions on governance. And you should be informed about uh, empirical right. evidence. So I do use a lot of your material, and your book is, is a great starting point to see what's out there. So can you give us a little bit more of what's the history of the book and what's the latest? Why don't you talk about that, Brian? Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, the third version just came out last year. So we're up to three okay. now. Um, I think one of the benefits of working with Dave, and this came through in the book, is that we were, we're, we're really um, very practical and empirical. We really want to get down to what works, what actually works. And, and one of the benefits of working with Dave is he's got a very strong theoretical mind and knowledge and background, but also empirical and is very practical. So we looked at, you know, we want to look at the theoretical underpinnings of some of these issues, but also you know, when you're giving advice to practitioners, you want to say, does it actually work? And people come into this with very strong opinions. We both have the personality type where we're, we're fairly open-minded and we really want to be guided by what's practical. And we have looked, we've been able to look across the academic research, the empirical studies, and also work out with practitioners and get data, real world data on on, on what's going on in these different areas and meld that together to give what we hope is a more comprehensive view of issues, bring them to life in a way that people can put them into practice and learn from them. We also, I mean, one of the things you'll notice, we ask a lot of questions. We like to ask questions too. We don't always like to just give answers. Yeah. But I mean, it, when, when I came to uh, Stanford, they wanted me to develop a kind of a course like this and, you know, and, and the problem was there really wasn't much teaching material. You know, there were, you know, there were really weren't cases or, you know, and things. And so um, I reached out and said, you know, I, I need some help on this. They said, fine, here's, here's, here's Brian. And, you know, we, we matched um, <laughs> very well. And we, you know, we did some cases and, and support for the, for the, uh, for the course. Then we kind of quickly morphed into, you know, here are these closer looks. We've done almost a hundred of these and, you know, they're meant to say, here's a real institutional problem. What do we know about it? You know, legally, economically, collect some data around this. And then, so I say, you know, why does this matter to, to people? So it's very practical. They get picked up and, you know, newspapers and things and, you know, but it's been a, it's been a beautiful relationship. And then ultimately, you know, one day we're, we're having coffee. And it's like, you know, we got to pull this together in a book. So it seemed like a good idea. 
And um, but it's it's been it's been great. But I think you're right. There is a kind of siloed effect of corporate governance. And I think you're also right. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of opinions. And, you know, but it's, they, they tend to be based on, you know, a few experiences, whatever. And people generalize that we, we, we're trying to step back and say, you know, what do we really know and what we what don't we know? And and Brian sort of noted also, I mean, a lot of people think about corporate governance and say, well, it's all about the board of directors. Well, you know, it's clearly important, but that's only one one part of the whole setting, you know, where there's, you know, there's regulators, there's shareholders, there's, you know, manager, you know, it's like, and so all, the, so we've taken a pretty broad, broad view. Um, and it's, it's been, it's been great. Um, so, so one, one of the things that maybe uh, we should talk about is the structure. And, and I like how you've laid together the different research outcomes that you have in, in the corporate governance research initiative at the business school. So you have closer look series, you have quick guides, you have core yeah. concepts, surveys, journal articles, working papers, case studies, glossary of terms. It's very structured and it's very practical. In fact, you know, I teach a course and I do recommend to anyone who teaches governance to go to your site and look at the teaching materials because it does provide this kind of background on every topic. And how did you design this or or, or how do you come up with this structure? And it, it does seem very comprehensive. And as you said, you've already had more than a hundred closer look series, and they're very timely. And we will go into the ESG, that the latest right. seven myths, which we'll discuss in a minute. But I, I want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about the corporate governance research. Yeah, let me just say a little bit. Then I turn over to Brian. Brian's been kind of the mastermind on on a lot of this stuff. I mean, so when we started out, we started doing cases. Well, you know, cases take months and they're tedious and things like that. And and Brian had the great idea saying. Yeah, we're using these for teaching. You know, let's have something that's a little more cut to it. What's the real issue without going, you know, here's like a 50, 60 page thing. There must be something that's more digestible that's, you know, six, eight, 10 pages. And it was really Brian's idea to, to sort of to sort of do this. And I think it's it's really been great because you can turn these things around fairly quickly. Um, and you know, with cases, it just goes on and on forever. And I think in truth, Brian was tired of writing cases anyway. <laughs> he, he wanted something else to, to do. And then and Brian said, you know, if we're gonna do this, you know, we ought to summarize this stuff in um, you know, if people are looking for teaching materials or um, you know, companies, they're discussing something on the board. They want to know, you know, what is it, what do we know about separating CEO and chairman or staggered boards or things like that? And, and Brian really has, has, has pulled most of this stuff together. And it's some of it's like, you know, what do we know research wise? And then the other parts of it are, you know, what do we know practically? And, and if you wanted to have a short session on, you know, duties of directors or something, um, you know, here it is. Mm-hmm. Brian, why don't you, you know, it's, it's really your brainchild here, you know, so. <laughs> well, you say that, but that's not true. I mean, everything we do, we've done together. And a lot of it has come from the fact that Dave and I work efficiently together and we talk and then we come up with an idea and then we say, well, if we both like it, let's do it. And uh, every now and again, he comes up with something and forces me to do it. And I do, but, um, but, but, you know, it is kind of, I think our materials, first of all, they're all free on the web and mm-hmm. we just do it because we have stuff and we want people to read it as opposed to keeping it in some small secluded audience. 
and we really want to teach people. And I see it as kind of a matrix. I mean, they're all the different topics that I've talked about within governance. And then in the other dimension, there's you can go from very rigorous academic papers, which you know Dave does with other faculty and PhDs, and I really don't have any part in that. But and then I also add, to, no, one, no one reads, right? But other than that. <laughs> <laughs> but we go for, you know, it's from the very rigorous all the way down to kind of large data sets or samples or field studies or, or kind of specific company examples that we're trying to glean learnings from. And we really want to kind of fill it in and fill in all the different areas. And, you know, we have these PowerPoints, these quick guides. And, you know, I guess we have probably more terms and terminology than we should, but there are a lot of free PowerPoints that explain concepts in very easily digestible terms. And then we have ones that explain the research in very um, high-level summaries so that people can read them without needing some sort of deep um, educational background. And we've got a lot of data out there, too, just so people can see trends over time and governance. Yeah, and I got to say, I'm a huge fan of what you guys are doing, and I want to go into deep into one your latest closer look series, which is called the Seven Myths of ESG. Now, in the world of governance, ESG has become kind of the mantra, right? And there was a switch, right, David? Like at some point, shareholder view of the reason or the purpose of the corporation is to maximize value of the company in the long term was kind of considered the lay of the land. And suddenly it's shifted to this more stakeholder-driven governance. And also on a parallel track, ESG has become a huge investment force and has changed governance in a big way. And you've come out with this paper, which lays out these seven myths of ESG, which I think is great. And it's great for setting the table in, in the sense of you know, what's true out there? What do we really know? And I want to go into this with you. And the first question, of course, is we agree on the purpose of ESG. So what is the purpose of ESG? What is the purpose of the company? Yeah. Yeah. Brian, why don't you take this first one? I mean, I, I think Brian's done some deep thinking about this, but yeah, I mean, you really want to lay out what is it that we're after? You know, what's success, all that, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, some people definitely look at it from a shareholder versus stakeholder perspective, and they say this is about um, really taking away from the shareholder in order to benefit the stakeholder. And that's kind of more of a fixed pie view of these things. Um, You know, we're not doing enough for the other constituents of the company. We're only doing enough for the shareholders. And by doing that, we've caused harm, caused harm in society, caused harm to employees, caused harm up and down the supply chain. And and then other people say, no, well, if we actually do this, if we if we focus on the stakeholder, we'll actually benefit the company and we'll benefit the shareholder and we'll decrease risk and we'll increase long-term prosperity. And that's much more of a win-win, grow the pie argument. And of course, I mean, all this matters because if you're making investment decisions and if you're making strategic decisions, you need to understand what the goals and the outcomes are those. And it's very different to say, I'm willing to take money away from my shareholders and lose that money, you know, from their perspective in order to transfer it and benefit other people like employees. And it's a very different argument from saying, well, I'm going to spend this money now and the shareholders may perceive to take a hit, but they're really going to benefit in the long term and they're going to be happy and the employees are going to be happy and society's going to be happy. And I really think it's important that people understand what their view is and how ESG as it relates to their company is really going to um, play itself out. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a good summary. I mean, one of the things we've been thinking a lot about is, you know, is it is it a win-win? And we'll, we'll talk more about this in in performance and things, but 
you know, I guess our view is, look, if it's a win-win, even in the highly capitalistic view of the corporation, if that's true, they'd already be doing this. Right. And so what we've been focusing more on are the trade-offs. I mean, particularly the the transitional time, we're sort of seeing this certainly in the energy markets and you know, companies spinning off coal mines and then to private equity. And then, you know, they don't have the carbon weight on them, but it's not like the carbon level has gone down, you know, and, and so it's things like that. And so, you know, we sort of maybe overuse it, but we're just trying to get the story straight a little bit. What, what are we doing? And there's a lot of activity, lots of discussion out there. Whether everybody's talking about it the same way or across purposes, it's just, it's a little unclear to us, but um, I, we view this as really important. I mean, it clearly has been a, a shift to have more stakeholder perspectives. Um, I think that, you know, in the press reports, like, you know, these greedy corporations are just all capitalistic and, and you know, they only care about bottom line kind of thing. I think that's that's really not what goes on in most companies. I mean, companies to varying degrees have been talking about these things for a long time and, and some of them do doing something, others not, but it, you know, with the diversity push, equality, you know, climate issues, it's, you know, it's really on everybody's plate. So I think what you're seeing is, you know, the traditional Anglo-Saxon model is moving a little bit more to what you see in Western Europe and other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we're in, in a lot of ways, we're in early stages of this. And then, you know, how, how is it that you actually do this? Uh, And we could, we could talk more about this as we get into some of the myths, but like one, and I think the first myth is, you know, what is it that we're after? What's the objective? You know, and, you know, what are we assuming about things? I know those assumptions true. And I think there's just a lot of, I don't know, mystery and kind of half truths about that. And so that we thought that was the way to kind of kick it off. It's a little, you know, a little more philosophical, you know, but yeah. really, really. And, and and I like how you you set it up in, in terms of putting well on the one end you have people that think that it's about growing the pie on yeah. the other hand you have people that is about sharing the pie and then you have a third layer which is people uh, on the CSR corporate social responsibility which has been going on for a long time oh. even if you go back to <laughs> decades and except now this narrative has become central right it, it used to be kind of on the fringes but now it's it's become central so the second myth you talk about is that esg is value increasing so we go back to this idea what is esg i, I like you know joe grunfist has this thing where jokingly he said esg stands for extremely subjective guessing <laughs> and so what is this myth is this real how do you measure this yeah so this gets back to the objective where it's like, you know, is it a win-win? You know, you invest and, uh, you know, good things happen for both shareholders and stakeholders or, you know, everybody, everybody wins. I mean, so there's tons of papers on this stuff. I think most of them are not, you know, really great, uh, but, but clearly there's, you know, lots of really smart and uh, clever people working in this area. But, you know, there's... I don't really think there's really any definitive evidence that if you are very ESG oriented, of course, we'll talk about what that means and that that in and of itself is ambiguous, that you're actually generating financial returns that are in excess of your cost of capital. I think, and in fact, I think as I read the literature, and again, everybody was going to read this a little bit differently, I, I think, you know, there's 
you're probably losing a little bit on the margin. And, and so we'll see going forward. You know, you talked earlier about the amount of money pouring in the ESG uh, investment products. And, you know, obviously the millennials and have been the focus of that, uh, where they want to invest in things that are, uh, you know, good for them, them financially, but really good for things that they hold dear. And we'll, we'll sort of see. Um, but, you know, I think I, I'm just not, I just don't think that it's kind of it's not automatically value increasing despite the stories. I guess one thing it's worth talking about a little bit is there's certainly uh, organizations like Value Act and people like that where they'll go into an individual company and say, you know, here's something you really ought to you really ought to do. You should change from carbon based energy to renewable and and there's some upfront cost but if you look at it from a net present value standpoint over some period of time you really ought to do that so that that clearly is a win-win for that company and it's very specific i think there are cases like that and you 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 want to encourage companies to do that the problem is when you roll this out across the whole economy there's some situations like that but most of them are going to be a trade-off you have to do big investments or environmental, or, or you have to change various social programs, or you know whatever whatever you're considering. And I think there's it's costly, and whether the benefit's going to manifest itself through you know getting more customers or getting better employees, I think is it's just really unknown. I like the story, but you know the data not not so mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah. There's a couple lines there that stand out to me on the paper. This says the evidence is extremely mixed. And we do not know financial impact of ESG. <laughs> well, I think the, the point of emphasizing that is that we hear a lot from people, and I, I think they're well-intentioned, um, but often people promote how beneficial ESG is, and they do so by citing selectively from evidence. And you can cite extensively and selectively from evidence because there are a lot of papers. Uh, but I think when you look at this, as Dave says, in the whole, we truly don't know. Um, and I think it's important that, that people recognize that up front. I mean, that's just an honest place to start the conversation. Yeah, I agree. You know, the, the myth number three, sorry, David, you, you were going to say something? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Now, the myth number three is that we can tell whether a claimed ESG activity is actually ESG, which is a great <laughs> myth, right? What is ESG? And, and you give examples, Coca-Cola, Bank of America, and others. You, you talk about greenwashing. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I'm going to jump in here. I mean, we, we we see so many examples of companies promoting what they're doing, and I think it's laudable what they're doing. But the things that we want to point out are, one, I think you always have to notice that when companies show what they're doing in ESG, it's a very specific thing that tends to be very, very tailored to their business and beneficial for their business and beneficial for their reputation. And so, one, you have to wonder whether they're doing these things um, be because they actually see a problem and want to help it or that they help think it'll help them from a marketing uh, perspective to show that they're ahead of the game. Um, and then the other, the point that we want to raise here with, with these ESG activities that companies announces, we actually also don't know to what extent these are incremental and different from what they've done historically. So you could promote, you know, Coca-Cola can promote a world without plastic or a world without waste 
But they've been working on these sorts of conservation and recycling initiatives for a very long time. So is this a new thing that they're doing, or are they trying to say that they've always been doing this? And yeah, I, mean, I think that's an important part. Yeah. And we'll talk more about this. I mean, what they disclose and whether you can understand the disclosure and whether you believe it is is kind of interesting. And the part that we've been looking at a little more aggressively is this greenwashing thing, you know. And so, you know, obviously <clears throat> Europe is sort of ahead of the U.S. along these lines. And it's been interesting, you know, various funds or various disclosures by companies that European regulators have looked at and say, look, there's no ESG substance here. This is just, you know, claims and kind of fake marketing. And they've come down pretty hard on this. And so, you know, you see these these funds, investment funds that come up, they have a, a name that sounds like, you know, this really environmental. And then you look inside the portfolio holdings and you kind of go, well, you know, how how is this company, you know, included here? And, you know, I'm not trying to say people are, are deceitful necessarily, but I mean, I think you want to be straight with the public and your customers and employees and everything saying, you know, are, are you actually doing this or not? Uh, certainly the green bond space, there's been a bunch of things where it's like, you know, you're claiming these are going to be green initiatives. Then you look at it and kind of go, you know, it's kind of, you know, maybe token amounts of money spent in that, and the money was actually raised for for other things. So, um, yeah, I think ultimately when you start coming, start doing this stuff, you're going to do a deeper look at it, and, and and let's hope that they're they're truthful about this. But this greenwashing concern, I think, is, is a real one. Yeah, I I, I think this is, uh, and there are, and here's where the law comes in. Uh, there are enforcement actions. The yes. SEC is looking into some of these cases, and. And the SEC has become, you know, there's a task force now around this. So we can expect more enforcement actions down the pipe, uh, which leads us a little bit to the myth number four, which is a company's ESG agenda is well-defined and board-driven. And you cite some data in there, which is very eye-popping. Some surveys from Pricewaterhouse, from Diligent, and others uh, where they talk that directors don't really know what is ESG and what a strategy is. Uh, 58% of directors have little or no confidence in their ESG program that's part of Diligent. Why don't you talk to us more about this myth? Yeah, let me take that one in. So our view is it's hard enough to run a company well to create shareholder value. Now you've got a multiplicity of objectives and you have to decide how you're going to invest and how you're going to prioritize and things like that. And I think this is this is pretty new for boards. And and then they're getting pushed back from obviously the Black Rocks and others of the world on, on various kinds of things. So, you know, this is something that's developed over time. And I don't think boards are really in a set in a setting where they've got a well-developed framework. Here's how we're going to think about this. Here's the ones we're going to choose. Uh, others we're going to we're going to worry about, but not right now. And I think it's really made it very, very complicated. Uh, for for boards and you know obviously the, in most say public companies the, the managers come up with the strategy and things like that and the board vets these things and approves the budget and you know there's a discussion you know but I, I think those discussions at early are at early stages you know what is it that we're going to hold dear you know you have all the standard kind of thing you know we value diversity we you know we value environment et cetera et cetera you know what you know and then it's like okay that's that's great. You know, what, are, what is it that you actually do that supports this? And, you know, do you want to, 
you know, develop, use some kind of framework, you know, maybe the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or something like that and, and have supplemental disclosures where boards have weighed in on that saying, this is what we do and this is what we, kind of what we hold dear. So um, it's just new. And, you know, other things that we've looked at that are kind of related to this, what do you do if you have employee activism around these events and things mm-hmm. like that? And, you know, these let me, are- let, let me ask you here, because there's been some interesting cases also in Silicon Valley, right? Yes. One of the cases is Coinbase. So the yes. company came out and said, look, we don't want to discuss all this political and social issues in the workplace. And if you don't like it, here's a pay package and you can leave. And, and it, it became in the media a big storm. Right. Uh, you know, the CEO kind of claims this was the best thing he ever did. But it is creating discussions within management and within boards. And let me ask you an additional question added to it. There's been a trend of adding directors with ESG expertise. This is typical in boards where, uh, you know, something's lacking. Remember there was cybersecurity, let's add cybersecurity experts. Is this a trend that you see maybe, uh, Brian, any thoughts on, on the political activism and the directors with expertise on ESG? Well, I can't imagine there there may be directors being added with ESG expertise, but I can't imagine there are many people with actual ESG expertise. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, it looks like a lot of the ESG agenda is is not tied in, as Dave says, with the strategy setting, and that's where really where it should be. But uh, you know, you can think of companies and the CEOs who run them and the employees who work there as really being bombarded on many fronts for for their activities. You know, whether it's from their customers or or what they're doing and what their imprint is. And a lot of it is responsive. And some of this CEO activism that you see is responsive because the CEOs are put on the spot or asked about something, or sometimes they're just in the middle of a, uh, of a dialogue and they feel that they need to express their opinion. And it has ramifications beyond themselves. And I think one of the things we were pointing out in this myth is that the boards are kind of reactive and a little bit one step behind from where they should be. And I think you know, where they should aim to be and where they're trying to be is thinking about how these things, how the, you know, the stakeholders fit in with their long-term value creation, their strategy, and then obviously, you know, how can they improve them and improve their outcome? And that, you know, that goes back to our first um, question, which was, and and how much do you want to spend on that? And what kind of benefit do you want to give to them? And at what cost is the company willing to, to bear to do so? Well, and, and part of that is a little bit what David was saying, which is, you know, if we go to the myth number five is that G, the governance side, belongs to ESG. And so when I say ESG expert, what does it mean? So are you an yeah. environmental expert? Are you a social expert? Are you a G, governance expert? Yeah. And so yeah. let's talk about how this all came about. How how did we create this acronym ESG and suddenly it's all one and the same thing? Yeah. Well, ESG has definitely subsumed all of governance, I would call at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's so... Just to go back just a little bit, I mean, there's been this whole push, as you as you know, Evan, that um, you know, add an expert on the board. Um, I my instinct about that is it's worth talking about, but that person is going to have very specific expertise and probably not a lot of heavy operating experience. And you know, whether you can integrate such a person into your board is something that's not clear. I mean, I, I think. I think the smart move is to probably find consulting experts on this thing and have them consult to the board. And if the, if it looks like it's with cyber or whatever, then you want something, you know, like that. But I, I don't think it's a natural onboarding. Um, but on the, um, 
the the G being part of ESG, I'm actually not sure where the where the ESG you know acronym has has come from, but it's always struck us as very odd that G's embedded in E and S. Um, you know, G is you know how we're going to do business and how do we set up the board and and you know what do we hold dear and how do we monitor things. I mean, those are things that you know give rise to decisions and and expenditures on E and S. They seem they seem very different, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously, there's lots of people that claim they can measure governance. Um, you know, I, I kind of <laughs> we kind of wonder about that as well, but. It just doesn't seem like it should be rolled together, particularly if you're looking at companies saying, hey, here's your ESG score, which we'll get to in a, in a second. But, you know, the G being folded in with ENS just seems very, very strange to me. It seems like it's important, but ought to be broken out. You know, the environmental and, and social issues are, you know, they're outcomes from the G process. And, you know, we've been kind of pushing, you know, we should we should back that out and focus on the, the ENS parts, but it's interesting to see whether certain governance structures give rise to more E or more greenwashing or, you know, whatever it is, but mm-hmm. it just seems very odd that it's, it's folded in with ENS to me. Yeah. I mean that I, you could have a company that's very environmentally focused and friendly and, or, you know, involves itself and benefits a lot of social issues and be well governed and you can have a company that's well governed that you know isn't damaging to any of those but that's just not high on their priority list whatsoever i mean it's it's orthogonal it's it's just almost an unrelated variable yeah and and my understanding by the way is that esg came from the united nations uh when they were doing some of the work uh in early 2000s and it just evolved from these multilateral uh organizations Mm. uh but but you talked about something david that i think is goes into myth number six which is that esg ratings accurately measure esg quality and i i know you have a long history on research on uh, governance ratings. And so right. why don't we talk about now the ESG ratings? Yeah. No, I mean, <clears throat> you know, measures are obviously important. I mean, you want to track who's doing it and who isn't and, and things like that. But I mean, the measures have to be kind of reliable and, and valid. And um, yeah, there's, there's been this kind of feeding frenzy of, you know, here's ESG and here's you know, consulting companies or, you know, other organizations coming up with, here's what we think it means. And, and the, the ratings are in truth all over the place. And um, it seems very disturbing if, if you say, you know, this measure is supposed to be the following ENS and, and this is what we're after. And then different, you know, credible organizations come up with things and are either unrelated or even negative and related to each other. You know, what, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, it's, and, and I think that, you know, obviously popularizing ESG sorts of objectives and, and criteria are really important, but also to make some progress, you have to, you know, measure against something. So from an investment standpoint, you know, does it make sense to say, here's MSCI ratings or Sustainalytics or, you know, all these things and sort of say, well, we're going to take the top 50 and that's going to be our ESG portfolio and ETF. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if that gives rise to companies that have more of an ESG focus or not. And so I, 
I'm really suspicious about the ratings, or I'm sorry, yeah, the ratings. And um, I think they're really needed, but I think a lot more work needs to be done on these things to sort of say, you know, can we get on the same page about this? Now, something like maybe some environmental issues, like, you know, what were your uh, discharges or effluents or, or things like that, you know, EPA collects, and maybe they were pretty hard, um, assuming they collect the right measures. Uh, but so in social, it's just very, very difficult to, you know, to measure. Did you have a, a, you know, an expected social impact on something? You know, what are, you know, how can you convey what you're doing from companies and things like that? So I think one of the things that are, that's kind of retarding this from a, a research standpoint, but also from a, you know, what are companies doing? Should I invest in them standpoint is, I don't, I don't know if the, the ratings are, or up to the task. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically, they're what Dave's saying is they're they're kind of two key problems or challenges. One is you know the the theoretical or the methodological way. How do you set up a methodology that says I'm ac- accurately going to capture what you are? I mean, we know the demand is there. If you were in running an investment company and you want to describe the ESG quality of your portfolio, you need some way to do it, just like you would with credit ratings. Um, but then a company has to come along, the rating agency has to come along and say, well, how are we going to deal with it? I mean, is it just how well are you doing within your industry or how well are you doing this overall? And then once you've done that, you have to do it across you know, environmental um, variables, across social variables, and then governance, which is unrelated. You know, are you, do you have good carbon emissions? Are you good with diversity? You've got a nice supply chain and you don't have dual class shares. I mean, that just doesn't even seem to go together. And then on the, the, the second part is once you've come up with your methodology, you have to be able to get the data. And it's extremely hard as an outsider to look at any company, especially any large company and, and, and describe that. I mean, if, even if I decided how I wanted to measure General Motors on a social variable, then I'd have to be able to do it even after I decided how I'd do it. So you got to. I think one, I mean, a good example is, you know, can you verify your supply chain uh, internationally? You know, are you using child labor, inappropriate labor? Are you, you know, you may be environmentally fine in the States, but if you go to other areas or countries, you know, you know, the the environmental um, things may be, may be pretty bad. So it's like, you know, and then, you know, how, how do you actually verify that? And, you know, how do you report that? Or, you know, how do you measure? I think it's really important. You know, it's a really deep social issue. But I think we're at the early stages of trying to figure this out, particularly when you go across, you know, uh, different geographies in different countries. No, absolutely. And, and certainly uh, geopolitical uh, issues are flaring up and yes. the relationship between China and the United States is is tense. And, and so these... Uh, it reminds me every time we talk about governance, it, it there is, and you do have a paper on this that there's a over that there's a tendency to generalize these terms. But what governance means, it's it, you know once you go deep, there are so many layers uh, behind this that it's easy to try to use one acronym to put everything together. But as we try to describe them, there's a thousand things to to consider in here. Right. So this takes us to to the seventh and last myth, which is mandatory disclosure will solve the problem. So uh, what are the cost-benefit trade-offs? Uh, and you, you do talk there, and you, you write a little bit about Sarbanes-Oxley and what happened at the time when that legislation came about. 
But let's talk about this because this is kind of the latest iteration where maybe the SEC is mandating more disclosures on ESG, on human uh, capital. Uh, what are your thoughts on this matter? Yeah, the disclosure issues. So, you know, it's the sort of, you know, if you shine a light on it, you know, people are going to be, you know, behave better and, and disclosures. I mean, there's kind of two disclosures. Like right now, the disclosures are mostly voluntary. Um, and, you know, some people have detailed human capital reports, other, you know, others don't and, and things like that. But once you, once it's voluntary disclosure, disclosures, you know, there's, there's the obvious tendency for companies, you know, to, you know, let's say massage these disclosures a bit. And what's, what's, what's a little bit frightening about that is holding aside maybe straight environmental stuff, but most of the ratings that are pulled together, they're doing some sort of summation and assessment of things that are voluntarily reported by the company. And it kind of makes you wonder, are these credible measures? Okay. And then, and then what's happening, of course, is, you know, particularly the human capital side that the SEC is looking into, it's, you know, how do you, how do you disclose this and what are, what are the issues? And, um, you know, the initial human capital reports that you see in the, in the last couple of years, I would say they're pretty much uninformative. You know, we value diversity, you know, we, you know, pay a living wage, we, you know, whatever, but it's like, okay, what is it that you are actually doing? Are you investing in underrepresented groups and things like that? And then, and then, um, you know, do you back that up or you tie that into pay that it's, it's something that's, it's really credible. So, you know, the disclosure issues, um, what do you disclose in what form should it be audited um, in some form? All those issues are, are, are kind of mysterious uh, right now. But I don't think, I mean, disclosure is, is important, but, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to automatically solve, solve the problem. Plus, there's other parts of the disclosure where, you know, there's proprietary costs of this stuff. So if you really have a fantastic method to deal with environmental things or, you know, assessing human capital, you know, should you be forced to disclose that? Um, you know, that's going to, you know, that's, that's, you know, it's not completely obvious. So I think the, the disclosure part is really interesting and we'll see how it comes about. But I think what we're seeing now is the disclosures, they're selective and, you know, I would say not as comprehensive or maybe not as accurate as you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the, met, the, the, the disclosure is informative if it has a lot of metrics associated with it and companies now are voluntarily disclosing the metrics that they track and that are easy and cost effective for them to track. And, and the complaint from the outside is that they're not comparable because if you don't all give me the same metric, then I can't compare it. And, but as you go across companies and even within industries, I mean, industries kind of blur together and blend together, and these metrics become more and less relevant as you go across companies. And I know SASB has this materiality metric and they, matrix, and they try to say that you know certain metrics are, are applicable to certain industries. It's a much more complicated thing than that to do. And once you've agreed on what metrics a company has to disclose – then there's an incredible amount of either data collection and then there has to be validation and there has to be an internal audit and then they want an external audit. And there, a lot of the people pushing for this 
will benefit financially. It'll, it, but I have to imagine that it'll be extremely time um, consuming to set these up and extremely um, expensive to have all the, the audits and the verifications and the advice that has to go into this. And whether well, that gives any informative data you know, to an investor or to a member of society is still not actually very clear at this point. Well, there certainly seems to be a cottage industry around ESG that is growing by the day and is just uh, ramping up its activity. Let me ask you a final question on ESG, which is executive compensation. And David, you've been a a leading expert on executive compensation. What have you seen in terms of tying compensation on ESG metrics? Is this something that is growing, that is changing? What are your thoughts there? So there's a a lot of discussion about that. I would say not as much as you would think. Um, and so a lot of times you'll see in companies, and it's mostly in the annual bonus. You don't see it, at least I haven't seen very many cases um, where you've tied it into vesting of options and things like that. You know, the longer term sorts of things, you know, you have to hit certain environmental targets before this happens. But, you know, it's, the, dis- the disclosure is very like, you know, we take into account a whole bunch of stuff as an in individual performance. And that's, you know, 25% of the weight, you know, the performance weighting on, on the annual bonus. But even in something like diversity, where you should have, you know, pretty clear metrics about how many people are of what type, you know, it's rare to pick up a, a proxy statement and say, hey, you know, we have a target of the following and, you know, you know, X percent of a bonus is is tied to that. So, um, you know, I mean, ultimately, if you think this is really important, it's key to your strategy. You want to you want to somehow map the comp plan in the strategy, and you know what, yeah, you know, what are the objectives of the corporation? And that, you don't see nearly as much as, as what you might expect. But you know, maybe maybe it's evolving. Uh, but it's still you know mostly tied to financial stuff or certain things with regard to. And maybe there are trends, I, I don't know, that, that may yeah. be coming from Europe or coming from Australia yeah. or other countries that are, you know, have deeper uh, ESG kind of history and maybe their compensation structures are more t- attuned to this new trend. Right. Yeah, it could be. I, I guess what I think if it, if it folds into, importantly, to long-term sort of things, you know, three to five-year plans or things that are equity-based, I think that would be really pretty interesting. And I guess the pushback from that is, well, you know, if we're doing good things, it'll show up in stock price anyway. And, um, you know, and we're, and it's already embedded in there. But I think just from a, a disclosure, attention directing, hey, we're serious about this, you'd expect, you know, a little more specificity about, you know, here's what we're doing, here's how we're measuring it. And, and um, you know, if we don't hit these targets, somebody's going to get a lower a lower bonus, but uh, honestly, you know, it's like you, you made the great point. You're like, you know, the whole things about um, these issues have been around for a long time. It's just that we're seeing it really firsthand in the states, and I think we're at kind of early stages of evolution. And I do agree with you. It's kind of this feeding frenzy of consulting companies, some of which are probably doing it good, and some you know, less, less good, but, you know, we're, we're going to see, but, you know, I think it's not going to be something that's going to be easy to standardize. Um, you know, we have kind of standardized accounting principles, but, you know, there's discretion in, in these as well here. This is something is 
much more ambiguous. It's an in, it's a kind of an intangible asset or intangible liability. And you know, how do we want to do this, or what disclosure makes sense? You know, you don't want to put every company in the same box, and then you know, who's the arbitrator of that? That that's acceptable or not? I mean, th- these are all things that um, you know have to be worked out. Brian, any any thoughts on, on that last myth, and and to wrap it up on on our governance discussion on this? Yeah, well, I think one more thought on the compensation. I, it'll be interesting to see situations where a board where a CEO does very well on ESG related activities, but does poorly from a performance standpoint. Right. And how does the board handle that? And how happy will shareholders be if you say, "Well, I'm going to give you the the bonus because you did achieve your ESG goals, but you haven't." Performed well from from the rest of the business. Well, don't so we have the be, case there will of, be challenges. of uh, Danone, right? Uh, which is a French company whose CEO had implemented a very strong version of ESG, which is a, a a special category of business, a bit like a public benefit corporation. It was the first publicly traded company in France, and he was kind of the the number one guy implementing this. But at the end, he got fired. <laughs> so, uh, so it's interesting to see where we are going. And I know we could be talking over a long time and, and certainly on compensation matters, but we have to keep going and into the rapid fire questions. Okay. So let me ask you and, and start with uh, you, Brian. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? Well, first I'd, I, first I'd have to say the Bible, because if I didn't have my faith, I wouldn't be able to stand at all. Um, but besides that, I spent a lot of time reading a lot of history, United States history, um, from the founding of the country, Jacksonian era, Civil War, railroads, big companies coming in the late 1800s. And it's just mm. fascinating to me to see kind of the foundation of all the things that have led up today and where we are. And it's also fascinating for me to see that that really wasn't that long ago. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, my great grandparents were alive at some of, you know, some of that parts of that and. And Dave himself might have been alive for part of that as well. But <laughs> every I take back everything I said good about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, me, I, I would say, I would, I would, I like Brian would say the Bible and you know various parts of it is is, is really key. I'm a I'm less of a a, a scholarly reader. I I mostly read books on biographies of of rock stars and the Grateful Dead. So I, mm, I nice, you know, so <laughs> good. I like it. Uh, all right, Brian, who were your mentors? I have one in mind, and what did you learn from them? <laughs> no, Dave's Dave's been a fantastic mentor to me. I mean, I, 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 I think my whole horizon on how I look at these issues has grown greatly. He's given me, he's put a lot of trust in me, even when I was a young pup 15 years ago, and uh, and and I truly appreciate it. And I've I enjoy working with him every day. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think for me, I. Yeah. I would I would add my father into this. I mean, he was a guy who didn't have much education, but he was really smart. And he would, when he was alive, he would call me up periodically and yell at me about the level of executive pay. And I would always tell him I didn't have anything to do with that. And he said, "I thought that's what you did." And, and so, but I guess I'd like to highlight in terms of mentors. You know, um, we did a lot of work with Dick Donatello, and who unfortunately passed away. And I would say to both Brian and I, he was he was really a mentor in terms of you know linking us into kind of the real nitty gritty of of boardrooms and, and things like that. So it yeah, I would say that would you know okay. that would that would be it for me. Yeah. That was great. 
Uh, Brian, are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? Well, no, I, I mean, I, I live by, my dad's always taught me to keep my head on straight and I just kind of go that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess for, for me, it's sort of like, yeah, academics or having an academic job is, is, is pretty strange and everybody thinks they're the smartest person. I, I, I think, I think the quote is, you know, no matter how smart you think there are, there's going to be somebody smarter than you going to come around and let's, let's got to be a little more humble about, about what we're doing, you know? So. Love it. Love it. Brian, any unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? You know, I can't really think of one. I mean, I, I do think, uh, no, I'm just gonna have to pass on that. <laughs> okay. Dave. Yeah. We're, you know, I'm sort of in the motorcycles and, Oh, um, nice. And so I think that that's probably absurd. And my wife keeps pressing me on, you know, whether I still have the reflexes to be able to do this. And I go, yeah, no problem. You know, so, uh, okay. That's good. Uh, what, what, what motorcycle do you, do you ride? Old American iron Harleys. Yeah. So, <laughs> Harley's yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, finally, uh, which living person do you most admire? Brian. Well, I, Dave won't be surprised by this, but I really admire uh, Charlie Munger at Berkshire Hathaway. And I think he's taught, taught me, uh, kind of look at things very broadly, keep a really wide open mind. Don't be overly wedded to your best ideas. Be happy to change them with the facts change. And, and I mean, it served me well in life and served me well in, in my career with Dave. And yeah, I certainly admire him. So I'd say for me, it, it admire is always a, a kind of a strange term, but you know, I, let's say people that are really, really interesting. I mean, I think Elon Musk is a pretty interesting character in a lot of dimensions. And um, I don't know if I'd use the word admire, but sort of. And uh, let me just say, you know, this is kind of a love fest. I do admire Brian and I really appreciate the work that we've, we've done together. So That's great. Well, Dave and Brian, this has been excellent. Thank you very much for, yeah. uh, uh, you know, coming in. It's very special to me, my 50th episode of the podcast. I have, uh, I'm a huge fan. I read as much as I can of all your research. So having you in the podcast is fantastic and, and sharing your views on many of these issues. Maybe for some people out there in the governance world, it's contrarian, right? And, and, and what I like about it is that, it's pragmatic and you don't pick a side, right? Like this is what you see from the empirical evidence and that's how we should take things. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate the opportunity to be on here. All no, right. we're very happy to be here. And, you know, congratulations. You've got a great podcast going here, Evan. You've got a fantastic newsletter and, uh, you know, we support it uh, because we just see great value in it. So keep doing it. All right. Well, thank you very much. See you Thanks. soon. All right, Bye. guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.